Well, good morning, everyone. Um, Tim is up in uh, or out over in Washington, D.C. with with Tyler and Elisa. So um, the stand-in. You always got to check the clock. All right. Let's go to the, the Lord in prayer, and we will jump in. We're going to be in Acts 20 this morning, uh, continuing on what we've been going through. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the meeting of your church. How good it is to be uh, in the congregation of the redeemed, to be um, built together as living stones, like your word says, to be a holy dwelling place for uh, God. God, we're reminded every Sunday of the resurrection of, of our Lord, and especially as we get closer to Easter, we're just reminded of the power uh, that has come to redeem us from the law and to um, loose the bonds of sin and death, and to give life to those who call Jesus the Lord. And the, the church is a precious thing, Lord, and uh, we're, we're just glad to be uh, counted among its members, to be adopted by a good heavenly Father, and to be here this morning gathered again with, with the redeemed of God. It is a tremendous blessing that uh, millions, billions have experienced throughout history and still experience today. So may we not take that for granted this morning. God, we thank you for uh, the presence of the Spirit where, uh, where two or more are gathered. And we, we, we meet that quota this morning, God. We're grateful uh, to be the recipients of your blessing this morning. Um, take the word from our ears to our hearts, God, this morning. Uh, illuminate to us, and may we love the Lord Jesus more because of our time spent now in your word. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've titled uh, the message this morning, Come All Christians Be Committed. I don't know if you're familiar with that song. It was written in 1966 by a woman named Ava Brown Lloyd. I'm just going to read two verses for us uh, by way of introduction here. Verse 1 reads, Come all Christians be committed to the service of the Lord. Make your lives for him more fitted. Tune your hearts with one accord. Come into his courts with gladness. Each his sacred vows renew. Turn away from sin and sadness. Be transformed with life anew. God's command to love each other is required of everyone. Showing mercy to one another mirrors his redeeming son. In compassion, he has given of his love that is divine. On the cross, sins were forgiven. Joy and peace are fully thine. This morning, if you'll turn with me to the book of Acts, we're continuing to review Paul's uh, travels through the Mediterranean on a mission from God. And this morning, we're going to be looking at who the church is or what the church is. And there's a lot of talk. There always is about, about what the church is. There are different denominations and different faiths that consider the church to be one thing or another. There, there are people who would say that, that this is God's house, that the, the, the building here is, is special or holy. Um, there are people who uh, say that, you know, I've seen bumper stickers, my church is, is the Redwoods or my church is Mere Woods or whatever. And so there's people who think that by taking a nature hike, they are communing with God, and I suppose in, in some sense they might be doing that. But the church is something very specific. 
Um, it's, not, it's not a building. We, God, is, God is not, uh, does not live in a house made by men, uh, but he is making a house for himself out of men, the, the priesthood of, of believers. And there's a lot of talk, especially in the last year, about the, the relevance uh, or the importance or the, the essentiality of the church. Looking through issues with COVID, you know, restaurants essential, is Costco essential, are pharmacies essential, is the Sonoma County Fair essential, yes it is, um, and the church has been on that list, is the church essential? First Timothy 3 describes the church of the living God as a pillar and bulwark of the truth. So I think another way for us to answer that question or to consider whether or not the church is essential is to consider whether or not the truth is essential, which many today say is not essential, that the truth doesn't exist, that my truth is just as valid as your truth. But the truth is essential, and therefore the church and the mission of the church is essential. The truth is essential, and um, the church being the support of the truth therefore is also essential. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, it reads, But you are a cho- chosen people, and I've alluded to this earlier, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may be d- declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And in John chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I think Jesus felt like church was pretty essential. Um, He certainly... He certainly loved the church. He gave his life up for the church. Jesus died for the church. Not for a building, not for a ceremony or a, an institution in a certain sense of the word, but for people, for his sheep, sheep that no one can ever snatch out of the Father's hand. And we're going to look this morning and see that Paul felt the same way. Paul's ministry his, earth, his, his ministry um, to the church in, in forming churches and supporting churches and growing churches uh, was the keystone of his life. Every, every day was spent with anxiety for the churches and care for the churches and building up of the church. So far, we've seen Paul has gone through two foiled murder plots. He's been driven out of town four times. He's escaped two riots. Uh, He's been stoned, he's been beaten and jailed, he's been dragged before authorities, and all of this is about service to the church. It's not about getting rich, it's not about making a name for himself, it is about service to the church. All the sufferings of Paul were worth it and necessary because church is essential. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 16, Paul outlines his ministry plans. And we're going to see as we walk through chapter 20 this morning, those ministry plans kind of come to pass and come to fruition. It says, after I go, this is uh, Paul, Paul writing to the Corinthian church, which is in Greece. Uh, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. 
For I do not want to see you now to make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, and that the implication there is more than just a passing visit, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. As we learned last week in, in chapter 19, we saw the riot that came about because of the, the craftsmen who were losing business over the idols that were being made. And this thought was in Ephesus. And we, we saw then at the close of chapter 19 that that wide door that he talks about in 1 Corinthians has closed. And so it's time for Paul, for Paul to move on. So let's stand together. We're going to read uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 1 through 16. We'll stand out of uh, honor for the word of the Lord, and welcome to do that at home as well. The word of the Lord in Acts chapter 20, verse 1 through 16 reads, After the uproar ceased, and again, this is the, the riot that happened in Ephesus, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. Being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story, and he was taken up dead. But Paul went down, and he bent over him, and taking him in his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for <clears throat> so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when, we met, when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came to the following day, the opposite of Chios. And the next day, we touched at Samos. And the next day after that, we spent in Miletus. For Paul had, Paul had decided to pass by Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And, uh, and be seated. May the Lord bless the, the reading and the preaching of his word. So in the beginning here, we read that Paul leaves Ephesus, bound for Macedonia. But before he does, it says he gathers the disciples together and after encouraging them, he says farewell and departs. So he calls together, I'm assuming, some people that were part of this riot. Um, some of the guys who were dragged out uh, before, the, before the crowd uh, who were almost killed. Paul makes his way in, and he narrowly escapes with his life. So as that dies down, he calls them together, and 
probably says something like, whoa, that was a close one, and then uh, moves on, but it says that he encouraged them. He encouraged the disciples at, at Ephesus. And then going through uh, Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece, so Ephesus is in Turkey, and the Aegean Sea is in the middle, so Paul uh, hikes up, he's going across kind of the top of what's modern-day Greece, but it was Macedonia at the time, and then is making his way down to Greece. And it says, as he goes along, he had given them much encouragement. These are churches that Paul, uh, Paul started on his previous missionary journeys. So he's going along and he's encouraging the churches. We might consider what, what that encouragement looks like, just briefly. You know, what was he doing? Was he complimenting their hair? Um, was he uh, giving them financial aid? Uh, what does it look like? What does Paul's encouragement look like? Paul's been spreading encouragement through, we'll see, preaching and exhortation. We'll skip ahead a little bit to next week where we'll be still in Acts 20, but through, through the rest of the, of the book. In Acts 20, 18, it says, You yourselves know how I lived, this is Paul talking to the Ephesian elders, how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, with, uh, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25 says, And now behold, I know that none of you, none of, uh, you among whom I have been going, going about preaching the kingdom will see my face again. So he's preaching the kingdom. Verse 27, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He's declaring the whole counsel of God to the churches. And then, and then in 31, um, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night, as we will see, um, to admonish everyone with tears. So that's, that's the ministry that Paul is doing amongst the churches and offering encouragement by exhortation, by teaching. Um, and he does this uh, earnestly and emotionally through tears and day and night. Uh, he doesn't tire from his, his work in encouraging the church. Paul continues his ministry from Ephesus through Macedonia, and he's not just walking along and revisiting the churches that he founded and started. He is doing that, and he is teaching and preaching, but he also has a specific task in mind while he's out on this particular missionary journey. He's collecting funds for the Jerusalem church, the poor in Jerusalem. In fact, while, while Paul is in uh, Greece, which he'll get to after Macedonia, that's the time in his life when he wrote the book of Romans, while he wintered in Greece. Romans 15, 23-28, therefore, says something about his time in Macedonia and the collection that he was taking up for the Jerusalem church. Romans 15, 23-28 reads, But now there is no more, no more place for me to work in these regions, since I have been longing for so many years to visit you, visit the Romans, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. These are, these are Paul, Paul's plans. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. 
For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have shared in all the Jews' spiritual blessings. They owe it to the Jews to share with them, therefore, their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have been received, that they have received this contribution, I'll go to Spain and visit you on the way. So Paul is in, in Greece at this point. He's writing the, Roman, the, the book to the Romans. And his plan is to go to Jerusalem to deliver these funds that he's been collecting from Ephesus and up through Macedonia, the fun, funds from the Gentile churches to deliver to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. Uh, he also writes the book of 2 Corinthians while he's on his way to meet with the Corinthians in, in Greece. So as he's traveling up through Macedonia, he writes 2 Corinthians, which we are all encouraged by today and benefit from. And then during his three-month winter in Greece, in Achaia, uh, he writes the book of Romans, which also we are the glad recipients of here 2,000 years later. At the beginning uh, of, of the book of Luke, and if you'll turn there with me, keep a thumb in, in Acts. Acts is, is written by Luke. Acts is like the, the, the sequel to the gospel of Luke. Luke is a, a physician. He's a doctor. And as we, sometimes narrative, sometimes narrative passages of scripture can be a little bit tricky to preach because it's just a story, right? So like we can just talk about the details of the story and we can leave with, with a story and an understanding of what took place. But it's important for us to understand why it was written and why it, was, why it took place and why it was important enough to record for us. And as I was reading through some of the accounts in 2 Corinthians and in Romans, where it's Paul writing about what his intention is, we get a view from Acts, like from the outside, where Luke is telling the story of what's happening in Paul's ministry. What Paul's doing, where he's going, who he's talking to, and he's looking at it from the outside. And then when you step in and read 2 Corinthians, and when you read Romans, you're on the inside. It's Paul talking about the things that Luke is observing from the outside. So even just what we read in Romans 15, Paul's saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I mean, he's writing from, from Greece, and he's saying, I'm planning on going to Jerusalem, and then I really want to get over to Rome because I haven't seen you guys. I've been wanting to come for a long time. But first, I went up through here through Macedonia, and I collected money, and then I brought that over. I'm going to bring that over to Jerusalem. That's my intention, and then go there. Um, and we see that like from Paul's own perspective in those books, and then Luke is writing it from the outside, and it's, it's, it's so fascinating to me. Um, the first four verses of Luke read like this. And remember, Luke, Luke is the author of Acts here, and he accompanies Paul on this third missionary journey. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have, uh, have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word that have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus is this, this guy that Luke kind of writes this book for. And the purpose is in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. We would have certainty of the things that have been taught. You know, the Bible is obviously a very old book. It's, it's many books, actually, right? Written by many people. And it is a book unlike any other book in the history of, of, of humanity. Um, there, is n there is no other book with the kind of historical attestations that the Bible has. Nothing. And you listen to some, uh, take a 
quick aside here. I won't get on my soapbox too much here. But you listen to some uh, textual critics who talk about and cast doubt on the word of God that maybe it's not reliable and, and here is why. And yet if you ask those same people about the historicity of like the Iliad or the Code of Hammurabi, they have no concerns with that. Um, the, 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 the historical attestations that are available for us in the historicity of Scripture far, 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 far and away outweigh any other work of antiquity that we have today. It's not even close. And when, so when we read stuff like 2 Corinthians and Romans and then uh, Luke's account of what's happening in Acts, again, from the outside and the inside, it's amazing to read because you're getting the same story from different perspectives that agrees, and yet they shine light on each other. One is not more necessary than the other. It's just incredible. So we can have all kinds of confidence in, in the Word of God. Amen? All right, let's continue uh, reading here in verse... Three. So he's been through Macedonia, he's left, left Ephesus, and now he's come down to Greece, where again he, he writes the book of Romans. It says, there he spent three months, this is over the winter, when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So contrary to what he wrote in Romans, and I imagine Paul like, running after the mail carrier of the day, like, oh, wait, I'm actually not going to, I'm not going to Jerusalem yet. Um, I can't correct that letter. It's already off in the mail. Um, he's unable to go to Jerusalem by way of the sea, at least, as was in his intention. And we learn it was because of a plot from the Jews. So the Jews are after Paul to kill him. And we don't have a lot of details here, but I can imagine that uh, there, this is during the time of Passover, approaching the Passover, and there were three different festivals uh, that the Jews were required to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate, and the Passover was one of those three. So Paul is hoping to get to Jerusalem in time for the Passover because there's going to be a lot of Jewish uh, pilgrims in Jerusalem at the time, so that'd be a great time to deliver this, uh, the offering from the churches, a great time to proclaim the gospel to the Jews, the city is going to be full. And the, the offering would be a great um, centerpiece, centerpiece of love to extend the gospel offer. But he's unable to do that because of the plot from the Jews, which we, I imagine had something to do with the boat, which is why he decided to hoof it instead. Um, on a crowded boat with a lot of immig- uh, uh, pilgrims going to Jerusalem, it would be easy for someone to slip a knife uh, across into Paul's side and then heave him overboard and no one would be the wiser. Perhaps the plot looked something like that. So Paul gets word of it, thank goodness, and um, leaves and goes back up through Macedonia and sees everyone who he probably said he was not planning on seeing again and travels up back sort of the way he came up and over to Ephesus. But so Paul's plans are, are frustrated. And in, in Paul's man, mind, he, he thinks Jerusalem, Passover, that's the way to make this happen. That's the right time to deliver these funds. That's the best time to proclaim the gospel. And his plans are frustrated. Paul, as, as I was kind of thinking through that, like the idea of, of my, my plans being frustrated, which, which happens all the time, it's something we can all um, sympathize with, understand, when you have a plan and it doesn't go the way that you want it to go, 
Um, anyone with children certainly knows that happens all the time. It can be very easy to get frustrated, angry with whoever has stood in our way. And in Romans, again, the book that he just wrote, it's so full of messages of the sovereignty of God. And so I think Paul, Paul's no doubt frustrated that he, has to, he can't stick with his plans, but he just finished writing a book that's all about the providence and the sovereignty of God. And I think he, he's resting in that. And his, 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 I would be angry with the Jews who are, who are thwarting my plan left and right and upsetting my timetables. But in, Ro, in Romans 9, Paul writes about these very Jews who, maybe at this time he hadn't learned about the plot, I imagine he hadn't, but these are the Jews that he's writing about who are plotting after his life and are frustrating his plans. In Romans 9, uh, 2 through 5, it says, I have great sorrow and unceasing joy, I'm sorry, unceasing anguish, opposite thing, in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. He's talking about, about the Jews. Those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption, the sonship, and theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises, theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah who is God over all. He's forever praised. Amen. So Paul just kind of takes this in stride. He knows that God is sovereignly in control. He submits his own plans to the plans of the Lord. And he heads up through Macedonia. Paul, through this example and through other examples we've already seen, what we saw in chapter 19 and beyond, is persistent in his love for the church. He's persistent in the face of major setbacks and discouragement. He does not let the Jewish attempts on his life keep him from his ministry to the church, from loving the church. Uh, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul chronicles the difficult things that he's had to deal with in his ministry to the church. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. And the 40 lashes minus one, and I don't know if you're familiar with that, but the thought was that if you gave someone 40 lashes, it would kill them, most likely. So, like, the, the closest thing you could get to the death penalty without the death penalty was 39 lashes. This happened to Paul five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. Spent a night and a day in the open sea. He's been in constant, constantly on the move, been in danger from rivers, in dangers from bandits, in dangers from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger from the city, danger in the country, danger at sea, in danger from false believers. He's labored and he's toiled. He's gone about without sleep. He has known hunger and thirst. He's been cold and he's been naked. Why? Why, Paul? Pocket some of that Macedonian money and go off somewhere where no one knows your name. And he concludes that section in 2 Corinthians 11 by saying, Besides everything else, on top of all of this that I've endured, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all of the churches. And that is, that is the undercurrent of everything that Paul does. Everywhere he goes, everything he says, everything he puts himself through, is for the church.
And I think it's because he, he recognizes what Christ did for the church and how much Christ loves the church. Christ died for the church. He gave his own life. And so it's nothing for Paul to do these things. And I want to warn, I, I want to gently warn, if I can, the church today. Um, things happen, and people have challenges in life, and so I want, to be, I want to be careful about that. But how often do we not come to church because we stayed up late the night before? How often do we stay home from church because um, we're not in a good mood, because we're depressed, or because we're angry with someone? Or because we have a stomach ache or a headache. Again, things happen, and I don't want to be insensitive to those things. But when we, we look at the ministry of Paul and what he endured for the sake of the church, it's kind of, it's, I'm embarrassed at the things that I let get between me and loving the church. My own selfishness and the things that I put before the ministry of the gospel in the context of the church. So it, to put the cherry on top, Paul continues to, to travel. He's, he's, he's leaving Greece because he can't do what he wants to do because of the plots of the Jews. And in verse 5 it says, These went on ahead. He's talking to the, the, all these individuals who are helping him carry the, the offering to Jerusalem. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. So... Instead of spending Passover in Jerusalem like he wants, he spends it in Philippi, which I'm sure the Lord had purposes in, right? Um, and in five days, we came to them at Troas. So it takes five days for him to travel from, from Philippi to Troas, whereas earlier in chapter 16 of Acts, it only took two days. So there's no letting up, but Paul persists. Let's read from verse 7. On the first day of the week... When we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story, and he was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So twice earlier in the chapter we read that Paul's encouraging the church, and here again, we see that he's encouraging them that they, when he leaves, he's not a little comforted. This is one of the earliest uh, records that we have of the meeting of the church. It's very interesting. So it says, on the first day of the week, the church has always, since the, since the resurrection of Christ, celebrated uh, the, the resurrection of Christ weekly on Sunday. This is why we we meet on Sunday. We don't meet on Saturday as, as uh, the Jews did under the Old Covenant, but we meet on Sunday. It's to commemorate the raising of Christ, and we see that they did that here on the first day of the week. And when they met, there was also preaching. We read in, of in verse 7, so much so that he prolonged his speech until midnight. Paul is uh, literally boring people to death. 
um, gives me a little bit of comfort if Paul can do it. Um, communion is involved. There's the breaking of bread. And then there's this sort of like informal fellowship that we read about towards the end in 11. It says when Paul had gone up, so he's taken the youth, they've broken bread and eaten. He conversed with them a while. So there's like, there's preaching where Paul, Paul is, is teaching them. And then they have a, a uh, communion service. They break bread and they eat together. And then they, they, com- they commune, they fellowship, they converse. And this is a part of the life of the church. And it's, it's, I'm, I'm encouraged when we see that today. You know, when people go out to lunch afterwards or go to someone's house or have a, a lunch out on the lawn. Where church, in one sense, is from 10 to 11.30. But in another sense, it's really every day of every, every week, right? Or at least it should be. Where we have genuine relationships with one another because we love the church. Not necessarily an institution, although the church is the only thing that Christ did institute, um, but it's, it's people. Again, it's not, it's not a building. It's not the house of God. We are the house of God, and the relationships that we have is the, is the fellowship of the church, and we see this in uh, the interaction here in, in chapter 20. Eutychus falls out of the window. It says that there are a lot of lamps lit, so... I mean, Paul was going on, obviously, and so he t- talked still longer. I think I kind of get the spirit that Luke is like, he's done this before. Paul, Paul, Paul was uh, running at the mouth again, and, uh, but there were some lamps lit in the upper room, so maybe it was giving off some fumes. It was warm. This, the language suggests that this kid was like between 7 and 14. My kids fall out of their chairs all the time. Um, I suppose that was going on. He was just tired. But he falls out the window, and it says he was taken up dead. And then Paul later says, don't worry, his life is in him. Um, But remember, Luke is writing this, and Luke is a physician. Luke knows what dead is and what dead is not. So uh, he was actually dead. I think we should read this, and we we can and and should read this as a miracle. It says that Paul went down, and he he bent over him. And it's reminiscent of two resurrections that happened in 2 Kings uh, by Elijah and Elisha, where People have died, and they, these prophets of the Old Testament would go in, and they, it says that they laid on top of them, like hands to hands, nose to nose, eyes to eyes, and then they got up, and then the person was raised. And that, that happened um, in Mark as well. So I think that we can read this as a, le- as a legitimate resurrection. It says that he was dead. He fell out of the third story. Paul goes down, resurrects him, and then carries him back up to the room. And at that point, I would have said, okay, yeah, it's late. Let's call it... Uh, I'll stick around another day. But instead of that, he says, don't be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. He pulls, Paul pulls an all-nighter with the, with, the, with the church at Troas. Conversed with them until daybreak. And they were not a little com- comforted. Paul makes himself available to people. He makes himself available to the church at his own personal cost. The, the plan for Paul, which is part of the reason that he talked so long, was to leave the next day. So on, in verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, they were gathered, they're breaking bread. Paul talked with them, intending to depart from them on the next day. He's planning on leaving, and he pulls an all-nighter. He is available to the people who need him. He's available to Eutychus who falls out the window. And he's available at his own personal cost. 
Paul's not building his own kingdom. He's working for the kingdom of God. The rest of the chapter, or I'm sorry, the rest of our section this morning goes on to say how he leaves. It says that he, he walks to Assos, whereas uh, Luke and the rest take a ship around and pick him up. It doesn't say why he walked. It may have been that he needed even more time with the people, that, and maybe he had other people walking with him, and he was taking advantage of, of the walk to be able to teach along the way, whereas in a boat, it was only limited to the disciples and the, 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 the members of this group that were bringing the offering with him to Jerusalem. There's only room for them. Maybe that was why. Maybe he's spending even more time with the church. If it was me, I would have taken the boat and gone to sleep after, after working all night like that. But Paul is persistent in his, in his making himself available to the church. All of this, I think, is the, 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 the amazement of Paul's ministry, I think, is compounded when we look at where Paul has come from and who Paul, who Paul was. You'll remember that Paul was a Jew. He was one of the people who is chasing after to kill him right now. Acts 26, 9, we'll, we'll get here in a few weeks, I suppose. But it says, I too was convinced, this is Paul talking, I too was convinced that I, had, I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down to foreign cities, Paul says. And now we see the complete opposite, where Paul is creating churches and encouraging churches. He's giving to churches. He's making himself available to churches. He's enduring persecutions and hardships for the sake of the church, not just in foreign cities, but all over the world. It's, it's completely 100% different than what he was doing uh, before. His life has been totally transformed. And I think, I'm, I'm sure that as Christ transforms us, that has to be our reaction to the church as well. We have, to be lo- we have to be, as members of Christ's church, loving the church in a way that builds her up, encourages her, takes care of her needs aggressively and persistently because of the transformation that has happened in our lives. I remember as a kid, I hated, I hated church. Um, I mean, I probably would have said at the time I was, I was saved, and I'm not one who has a date or a time on my salvation. But my, my parents drug me to church, and I'm glad that they did. Thank you, Dad, if you're watching. Um, they did drag me to church, and I'm really glad, but I hated it. I remember drawing pictures while I was in church, and I, I drew pictures of, like, people snoring, like, Zs over their head, and guy up on stage with a guitar, and just Zs. It was, it was so boring to me. And I love the church today, and it's because I've been transformed by the gospel. I love who Jesus loves, and Jesus loves the church. In William Barclay's commentary, kind of as we, as we wrap up here, he says this on the passage about the meeting of the church. And I think it's instructive for us, and again, if I can, with a sense of pastoral care and gentleness, challenge us with, with these words. Listen to William Barclay. He says, 
Here we have one of the first accounts of what a Christian service was like. It talks twice of breaking of bread. It was a meal when Christians sat down and ate in loving fellowship and sharing with one another. It may well be that we have lost something of very great value when we lost the happy fellowship and togetherness of the communion meal of the Christian fellowship. It marked, as nothing else could, the real homeliness, the real family spirit of the church. Is it possible that we may have gained in what we call dignity in our church services, but that we, but that we may have lost the sense of the congregation as the real family in God? As you consider your heart before the church this morning and your relationship to her, do you have a love for an institution or do you have a love for individuals, actual, actual people, as the church is? Do you have a love for the church that's rooted in routine and in ritual or in relationships? Do you love Scotty Rudell? <laughs> as a part of the church of Christ, in real ways that cares about him as a person? Or are you more concerned about getting here on time and leaving on time? Do songs that we sing take you back to a better time? Or do you get energized when you stand and sing on a Sunday morning and look across the room at Sarah Mee, who's singing the same words, feeling the same thing that you're feeling because you're part of the same body. That's really where the value in the church is. We do come to receive, and I don't want to downplay that. We do come to receive the word. We come to, fel to, to fellowship with the Spirit and to sing worship to God. But we do that together as a congregation, as a group of redeemed people. Something that's, that's really been a challenge for me during this, this COVID season is to, to, and again, this is necessary for some people, so don't hear me say that it's not, but church cannot be had by yourself at home. It just can't. You can hear it preached, and that can be helpful. And you can sing, and that's great if that's what you need to do. But what my fear is, as we come out of COVID season, that we've got a new uh, group of Christians in the church who are content to come and go as they please because they can watch it online if they need to. And I, I gotta say, I don't see in Scripture, and I don't feel like any of us can do church in isolation from home. It's a helpful tool. I'm glad the cameras are here. But when this ends, and it is ending, that needs to end as well. These chairs need to be squished up next to each other again. Yeah, I mean, we, it's important that we talk to each other and that we rub shoulders and that we cry to each other. I'm so encouraged. This happens more times than not. After the service, I'll be walking around, and I'm just not good at one-on-one at -on -one stuff. I don't know if you guys know me about uh, like that. I do much better in groups. But I see people praying with each other. And I'll, I'll, I'll overhear someone saying, can I pray for you about that? That is amazing. It's so great, and that is what the church should be doing. I see people breaking bread together, and that's how the church should be operating. Like the, the potlucks that we have, it's not just a Baptist tradition that, that gives license to our gluttony. It's a legitimate function of the church, and we've got to get back to that. We've got to get back to potlucks. Oh, I need a potluck. <laughs> so 
are, are you an encouragement to those around you? Are you eager and joyful in your giving? Are you persistent in the difficult things that come up in life that keep you from gathering with the church? Are you persistent and rebellious against the things that Satan puts in our way? And are you available to the people that are around you? Paul certainly was. And yeah, he was a special guy. He had a special ministry. But he also said to follow him as he follows Christ. And we don't see anyone love the church like Jesus loved the church. Not even Paul. Jesus has so loved the church. He bought her with his own blood. And so that's, that's how we ought to see one another, as blood-bought brothers and sisters. If you love Jesus, you must love the church. Let's pray in closing. God, as we approach Easter, I pray that we would remember the cost of, uh, the cost that it took to inaugurate the institution of the church. We're instructed in Scripture to do good to everyone, especially to those belonging to the household of faith. And God, as you continue to transform our lives um, through the conviction of sin and through the power of the Spirit living in us, I pray that all of that transformation would serve a thousand purposes, but would serve a very significant and maybe even prominent purpose to cause us to love your people. In fact, God, you tell us in your word that if we don't love our brothers, that the love of God is not in us. This is, our care for the church is a hallmark of uh, and and. and uh, one of the chief evidences that we are in the faith. Thank you, Lord, for uh, those who are gathered here and those who are able to meet at home. And Lord, we, we pray as we have been for a year now, and we continue to, that this season would come to a close. We know it's contrary, ultimately, to your design for your church, and we cannot function or love each other well in isolation. So we, we pray, Lord, that you would bring this to an end. Bless this day, God, what remains of it, um, a Sunday where your church around the world gathers to uh, proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity that we had in your word this morning, and uh, we pray that as we close in song, Lord, that our hearts would lift uh, together as one, though we are many, um, because we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.